In about the year 1000 BC, the ancient Israelite King Solomon wrote these words, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I'm wondering if you know exactly what that's talking about. Like, if you had an experience where you've been hoping for, you've been longing for something, and because it's been delayed for so long, you actually develop some sort of heart sickness over it. Some of you are like, heck yes, Chris, I know exactly what that means. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That has been my life for weeks, months, years, decades. I have been hoping for a spouse and and have dated and thought that that God was going to bring someone in my life, and here I am decades later, that hasn't happened. I know what hope deferred feels like. I had been hoping for a child, and every month we check that pregnancy test, and every month that's not happening, we get the same negative result, and I'm wanting and desiring for this to happen, and it hasn't happened yet, and I know what hope deferred feels like. I've been wanting to change a job, but I feel stuck in the job that I'm at and the career that I'm at. I've been wanting to find a job, and I haven't been able to, and every month it gets more bleak and more of a dire situation. We've been wanting for the adoption to be finalized, but the wheels of the system go so slowly, and every month we're hoping that we can have our gotcha day and that we can we can finalize the adoption and that the child can be um, officially welcomed in, in our home, and it hasn't happened yet. I've been hoping to have a breakthrough and talk with my father, but the relationship is still strained and it's not going well. I've been hoping to be reconciled to my brother, but it's not happening yet. I've been hoping God would deliver for me, and it, I'm just so tired of hoping. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of it not happening. I bet every one of us has a story like that. We all have them. I, for me, I, I, uh, I had 15 years of my life uh, from age 15 to 30 where I didn't talk to my dad. And I, and I was hoping that he would make the first move. I was hoping he would be the bigger man. I was hoping he would step out and, and try to rebuild a relationship with his son and that he would feel the responsibility and the weight of that. And it was just a long, tr- long wait for a train that ain't coming. Like, I talked to him once in that 15 years, and it's because I initiated it. I, I, I know what it means to, to wait and for something that you think is going to happen and that doesn't. This building project, we built 2810 down here. And if you know, you were part of the capital campaign when we started the Beyond campaign back in December or September of 2016, October. Um, you know, man, I was thinking like, hey, six to eight months, we're going to like build this thing. We'll be in there. We'll be in by Easter. I should have been more specific about which Easter I meant, which year, which, which decade. It was going to be like, uh, it took 22 months for something I thought, we think, thought was going to take six or eight months. And that's a lot of waiting. That's a lot of, oh, I still have nothing to say. Or that's a lot of, well, this isn't working out like I wanted to. And just every month wanting something to happen, and it's not happening. And I know that's not in the grand scheme the worst thing in the world, but it was an unpleasant thing uh, in, in going through it, and it was really frustrating. We're doing the Advent series this year, and we, and we do this every year where we focus on Advent. The word Advent is at Latin, it's Adventus, and it means the arrival. And it's talking about the arrival of Christ, the Christ Mass that we're going to celebrate. We'll celebrate on Christmas Eve together. It's the anticipation of that, looking forward to Christ coming to earth and, and, and the joy and the celebration that that is. And I want to talk about in this period what it means to be ready and waiting. What does it mean to wait well? Because a lot of your life you're going to spend waiting. How do we wait well? How do we anticipate the coming of Christ? How do we celebrate this Advent season together? Um, Advent is always built around or or typically around the world that is built on hope, joy, or hope, peace, joy, and love. And we're going to do four messages on that. And so today I want to talk to you about hope. So much of life is waiting. 
Uh, I saw some statistics from Timex. Maybe you've seen these. Americans spend, on average, and, here, and here's some stats, 20 minutes a day waiting for the bus or train, um, probably less so in, in Richmond, right? Um, 32 minutes whenever they visit a doctor. You're going you're to wait 32 minutes. 28 minutes in security lines whenever they travel. Ah, that's actually pretty good, I think. That one, you know, it could be better than that. This one I love. 21 minutes for a significant other to get ready to go out. Um, I was going to make all sorts of jokes about that, but I was informed that that would not go well for me if I did. So uh, just pretend I made a joke there real funny about that. Um, <laughs> but I'm just going to let that go. 13 hours annually waiting on hold for a customer service rep. At least the music's good, though, right? When you call Comcast, it's awesome. Uh, 38 hours spent each year waiting in traffic. I, I would say less in Richmond, more in Northern Virginia. Um, those folks spend like 38 hours every other week, probably, in traffic. Um, but but we, we wait so much of life. I mean, and I've, I've seen the statistics, like if you add it up, like over the course of your life, you're going to spend, you know, four years waiting in line or whatever it is. You know, they've got all these statistics about your whole life. Uh, a lot of life is waiting. So how do we do it? How do we wait with this? with hope that things will change? And how do we do that without our hearts getting sick from all the waiting? Well, I wanted to, to, to talk about that. I wanted to talk about a guy who kind of shows up in the Christmas story. This guy in the New Testament who waited his whole life for something. And before I tell you what it is, I, I, you got to get the backdrop of when Jesus shows up. Um, you, you need to understand the history that got us there. So let me just walk you through the timeline real quickly, and hopefully you can kind of track with this. But we've talked a lot about Moses this year. Moses leads the people um, to the edge of the promised land, and then Joshua leads the people into the promised land, into the land of Israel around 1400 B.C. From 1400 to about 1000, you've got the period of the judges. That's like Samson that we've been talking about in the last series, and Deborah and other people like that, some pretty famous people in that, that period. And then... Um, in the year 1000, Israel, roughly 1000, Israel has a pretty good run for a few years of some, some good leadership. They have Saul, followed by David, followed by Solomon. Things were good for Israel. They were, they were a wealthy country. But outside of that 150 or so year period, before that and after that, for the next thousand years up until when Jesus is born, things are bad and, and they, they, go, they go sideways for Israel. Israel is, if you look at Israel on a map, it's on the edge of the eastern uh, eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And Israel itself is a very small country right on the water, but it is surrounded by everybody who's a pretty big deal in the ancient world. The Babylonians and the Syrians and the Persians and the Egyptians and the Midianites and, the, and, and all of these groups, all of these larger empires that are much more powerful than Israel all fight amongst each other. They swing by Israel at, like on their way through and swat down Israel. They'll, they'll ransack Jerusalem. This happens multiple times. They'll burn it to the ground. They'll, they'll They'll crush the walls of Jerusalem. They'll burn the temple down. They'll, they'll loot the temple. They will carry the Israelites away to Babylon as slaves. This, this kind of thing goes on. So Israel's history is mostly oppression by other groups. It's mostly getting dominated for like 1,400 years until Christ comes along. And so the Israelites are hoping for deliverance. When Jesus comes along in 6 B.C., what had happened before that is that around 63 B.C., General Pompey comes through from the Roman Empire and dominates and kind of controls that area. He gets ousted in, in, by Julius Caesar. You've probably heard of him in 45 B.C. Julius Caesar sets up a king over, over Judea, over that area around Jerusalem. It's King Herod. Herod plays pretty prominently in the story of Christ's birth. So that's kind of the political situation going on. And so people in, in Israel, the Jews have 
a long history of being dominated by everybody else, of being oppressed, of being enslaved, of being captured, of having their stuff pillaged. Like, it's not a great scene for them. And so they're longing for a savior. They want someone to come make it right, someone to fix it for them. And God promises that. God says through the prophets in the Old Testament, he says, hey, look, I will send you some help. I'm going to send you a savior, a messiah, Someone who's going to make it right, who's going to bring peace to, your, to the people. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And then verse 6, this is on the greeting cards. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Everybody who studies the scripture says this is pointing to the Savior. Um, We believe this is pointing to Jesus. And this was written about seven centuries before Jesus even walks the earth. And and there's all these prophecies that say God will save you. God will send a Savior. And so you have people in Jesus' day and in the years before that as well who are looking for their Savior. They spend their life hoping that God will deliver them, hoping that God will bring, bring them uh, peace again as a, as a nation. And they're trying to interpret all the signs, looking around at the heavens and at the earth and looking for rulers and trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and try to figure out when is God going to send um, a savior. They're ready and waiting. And then God goes quiet for 400 years from the end of the Old Testament till, till Jesus is born. God goes quiet. And then Jesus is born in about 6 BC. And there's a guy named Simeon who's hanging out in the temple in Jerusalem. And Simeon is one of these people that has been waiting for God to send a savior. He's been kind of looking around and trying to see the signs of the times and see when is God going to deliver his people. Let me pick it up in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. I want to read it to you. It says this. And when the time came for their purification, according to this time about Mary and Joseph, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, let me give you the context so you understand this. Mary and Joseph uh, in Bethlehem, they go over to Jerusalem, not too far away. They go to Jerusalem, and they're bringing their child to, they're bringing Jesus to the temple. Now, according to the law, the Jewish law, there was a time of purification. So after a woman gives birth, you're supposed to leave her alone for 40 days. Now, medically, scientifically, we know it's actually a pretty good idea, right? When, when you give birth, they say, you know, Six weeks, you need to just kind of like lay low. And that was what, that's what they said then too. 40 days, uh, you need to have this time of purification. And then after that, if it's a firstborn son, you're going to bring him to the temple and offer him up to the Lord to say, this child is special before the Lord. And so that's what they were doing. And the law required that you brought a sacrifice for that child. So they would do offerings and sacrifices burnt offering. There's a burnt offering and a sin offering. And so typically what people would do is when they bring their child, they would bring a lamb and then they would bring a bird, a pigeon or a turtle dove, and, and they would offer those one as a burnt offering, one as a sin offering. Now in this situation, Mary and Joseph don't bring, it doesn't say anything about a lamb. It says a pair of turtle doves or, or a pair of young, young pigeons. They offer birds instead of a lamb. The reason being is they can't afford a lamb. 
So that, that if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could, you could offer two turtle doves. And I was like, how can you not read that and not hear that song, right? Like, it's already gone through your head, right? Okay. That's the only, it's my only context in life for turtle doves. So, so that's what they offered. So here's two things we know about Mary and Joseph. Number one, we know about their piety. We know that they love God and that they try to do what's right, and they're offering their son there in the temple to say, like, this is our son, and we want him set apart for the Lord. So we know they're religious people. We also know that they're poor because of the kind of offering that we know their piety, and we know their poverty. And we, so we, we get a little sense of the, the world that Jesus is going to grow up in with, with Mary and Joseph. So when they get to the temple, uh, they're, they're walking through the temple court, and this guy named Simeon, who's been waiting for the Savior for Israel, approaches them. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, what do we know about Simeon? Very religious, very righteous man, says he's righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is that? That is that Savior, Messiah thing. He's waiting for God to send a Savior to heal the nation. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. So God's Spirit is on him, and God's Spirit says to him, whispers to him, whatever, says to Simeon, you're not going to die before you see the Savior. Like, it is going to happen within, within your lifetime, which was, which, was pretty, which was pretty profound, I'm sure. And so... Imagine what it would have been like to be Simeon if you believe that God, you're looking for God to send a Savior and you think it's going to happen in your lifetime. Like every day I bet he got up with some sense of expectation. Maybe today's the day. And he gets out of bed and he goes over to the temple and he's like, maybe today's the day I'm going to meet the Savior of the world that, that God is going to send to us. Like this is the day he's, God's going to make things right. This has been promised for hundreds of years. This is the day. And really, every day it didn't happen. Like, he would go there, maybe he came back home, and he's like, man, didn't happen. All right, well, maybe tomorrow, and he'd get up the next day. Maybe today is the day, and just over and over, he longs for something, um, and he's waiting with hope and expectation, but it doesn't happen. And the weird thing is, Simeon has clear communication from God. God said, this will happen, and you're, you're not going to die before this happens. This is happening in your lifetime. Do you think that getting clear communication from God that this will happen makes things better or worse for you? when it's not happening. I would have thought it would be better, like, well, I know this hasn't happened yet, but God told me it's going to, so I'm cool, I can wait. But I think the reality of it is, it, it ends up being just very hard for people. Abraham and Sarah were told, you're going to have a child, and they were very old when they were told this in Genesis. Um, they were very old people, and God's like, I know you haven't had kids, but you're going to have a child. And, uh, and they thought, oh, this is great. But the reality is that child didn't come along for decades after that. So that's a lot of waiting around. That's a lot of it's not happening. That's a lot of like let's take matters into our own hands and come up with some other plan because even, I know God told us, but he's not delivering. And maybe Simeon felt a little bit like that. I know God said he's going to send a Savior, but he's not delivering. And maybe that's, maybe that's where you are right now. You've waited for something for months. You've waited for years. You've been hoping and waiting for something to happen maybe for decades and, and it hasn't happened. And you feel ready. You feel like things are due. You think things are maybe overdue. Do you think God can still show up in that moment when you're, when you're waiting, when you're hoping? Can God do anything there? Can God give you hope in your darkest hour? 
I think he can. So Simeon wakes up on this day, and his waiting comes to an end. He sees Mary and Joseph, and he takes their baby from them. That's not awkward at all. You know, they're walking through the temple, you know, first-time parents, you know, they're kind of walking through the temple, and here comes this old man, and he's like, let me have your baby, let me have your baby. And like, that's not awkward, and I, I don't know how it was in their day, if they're like um, hand sanitizer, like, you know, first before you, you know. So he like uh, takes their baby and holds the child up like Simba, and like offers this blessing. So read, listen to this. It says, And he came in the spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, this is what he said to God, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What is he saying? He holds the baby up in his arms. He holds Jesus and he goes, I can die happy. That's what he says. You're letting me depart in peace because I've seen it. This is, the, this is the thing I've been waiting for. And his hope is fulfilled in that moment. And how incredible was that for him? That one day that he finally goes in there and this is it. This is what's happening. What a thrill that would have been. But here's what I'm wondering. Is the thrill only in receiving what you've been looking forward to? Or is there any thrill or is there any joy or excitement in the anticipation of the thing, not just in receiving the thing itself? It made me think about the, the song we sing at Christmas every year, a uh, very famous Christmas song, right? I'll put the words up on the screen. Oh, holy night, right? It says, oh, holy night. It's talking about the night Jesus is born, right? The stars are brightly shining, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth. We all get that. Okay, we're talking about the night Jesus is born. And then look at this next line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. What is that talking about? It's talking about this incredibly long period of, of suffering and expectation and hope and, and, and desire that God would do something, that God will deliver Israel. And so the world is there. We're sinning. We're hurting each other. There, there's damage being done. There's wars. There's all this stuff. The, the world kind of is sitting in that, and we're pining for God to do something. Um, and then it says, we, we were pining till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. I love that line. The soul felt its worth. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus shows up, you and I realize how much we matter to God. You know, we have all this angst and we have all this, well, well, does God even know us? What if God was one of us? Does he speak to us? The gods are far out there. They're distant from us. God doesn't really care about me, my situation, my life. And Jesus' appearing says to us, communicates to us, no, he sees you. He knows you. Your soul should feel its worth right now. You can't make your soul worthy by doing all of these external things. You need to feel it just from this, that, that the Savior, that the God of the universe who created everything has shown up on our soil and loves you and wants to be in a relationship with you and is making a way for you to be in a relationship with him. That's what it's talking about. Our soul, finally, we understand our identity. We feel our worth before God. What's the next line of that song? The thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, right? The thrill of hope. Is the thrill, does hope, um, is there only a thrill when hope is fulfilled? Or is there any thrill in hope itself? I think there is. I think there's a way to experience some of that 
within the hope itself. In fact, our brains are hardwired for that. I looked this up. This is really interesting. Your brain has a lot of architecture, a lot of things in it to make you want and desire and to hope for things. It has much less stuff in it that allows you to actually enjoy the things that you've got. So the pleasure center of the brain is much smaller than the wanting center of the brain, put it that way. There's something called the nucleus accumbens, and when you want something, 100% of that thing fires off in your brain. When you actually get the thing you were wanting, 10% of that thing fires off in your brain. And there's other, there's other parts in there as well. So you are actually hardwired to hope. You are hardwired to want something even more than getting it. And as a kid, you should know what that's right, like, right? When we were kids, how often did you want something and then you actually got it and you hardly played with it? Like it actually wasn't as good. And you know what that's like. You probably know what that's like as an adult too. There's something about the wanting the thing that, that there's, a, there's a power in it, that there, there's something about that that it's almost better than or it's at least as good as even just getting the thing. Um, there's a thrill there to, to, to the hope. So there's some implications to that. Number one, we are designed to live with hope. We all have desires. We all have wants. We all have things we, we hope for. And some of those things are great. And some of those things are bad. There's things that we want that will actually be really bad for us if we ever got them. And some of the reasons I think God doesn't give us some of the things we want is because he knows they're bad for us. Um, so we long for, we desire these things. But I think one of the reasons uh, God has us live with hope and then not get all the things that we want, is I, I think God is not a cosmic vending machine. You know, a lot of people kind of go to this idea, well, I'm going to say my prayers, I'm going to ask God for what I want, and then he's going to give it to me. Um, if I've been naughty or I've been nice, he keeps a list, and he sees me when I'm sleeping, he knows when I'm awake. Um, oh, that's not him, that's someone else. But, but God, no, we have this idea that God sees us, and we're going to ask him for things, and he's going to give them to us. But if you think about it, that's just not a good real or healthy relationship. If you're in a relationship with someone who does everything you want them to do, is that a good relationship? Well, yeah, it'd be awesome. Like if my spouse would always do what I want them to do, if my boyfriend would always do what I want them to do, my girlfriend or my, my, my friends, if they were like all about me all the time, that would be amazing, right? Wouldn't it be great? No, it would not. That's not a real relationship. When you're in a real relationship, there's give and take. There's someone who has an opposite will of yours on some topics. And you getting what you want all the time is not good for you. And it's not good for the relationship because for someone else to give you what you want at all times, um, they're going to probably have to stuff down what they want. And so they're going to live with some resentment. And also, you getting what you want all the time is not a healthy situation for you to be in. You will become a dictator. You will become uh, not, you know, a, a really unpleasant person. Um, so there's something healthy. There's, something, there's some growth that happens in us when we sit in hope and we wait for something and when we don't always get the things that we want to get. So I, I think God allows the deferred hope. He allows some of those lonely times in part because he knows that's where we're going to grow, but in part because he wants to be in a real relationship with us. And that's the way that act, those actually work. So one, we're designed to live with hope. And number two, most of our lives will be spent with hopes that are not yet fulfilled. Simeon sees Jesus, holds him up, and says, I can die now. That's a great moment. It's, it's a fulfillment. Oh, I can die. But if Simeon's 80 years old, then 
what that looks like is 79 years of, well, I can't die now. Well, I'm not happy yet. Well, I'm not. F-. I mean, if, if he needs the fulfillment uh, to, to, to have any joy, well, then most of his life he's not going to have any joy. If we need to arrive to hit our goals, to reach our vision, to do all the things, if we need to hit all of that stuff in order for us to feel a certain way, well, we're going to... Mostly what that means is for most of our life, we're not going to hit those goals. We're not going to have that, hit that vision. So most of our life, we're setting ourselves up to be pretty disappointed. Most of our lives are spent living with a hope for something that's not fulfilled. And so we have to learn how to live in that space well. Think about if you go on vacation. You, being on vacation can be a fun thing if you're going somewhere cool, right? But the anticipation of going there, it can also be really fun. And it can be something that you look, that you look forward to. There's joy in, in both spaces, not just in the doing, but in the, in the hope and in the buildup and in the wanting. So how do we live with hope? Uh, how can we be ready and waiting in hope? Number one is this, surround yourself with other hopers. Surround yourself with other hopers. Emotions come and go. Based on what you had for breakfast, how much sleep you got at night, how you're feeling it today or not. Your emotions come and go. Our, 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 our hope sort of waxes and wanes. And so you need to be around other people who can, who can say, no, I believe in this too. Or no, I see that future as well. Let's hope for this together. Who can remind you of the goodness of the Lord when you're in a very dark place. And then you can do that for them when you're in a good spot and they're in a bad spot. This is why we surround ourselves with other hopers. And, and people in the church right now, there are, I've read your prayer requests. I've prayed with you. I have met people for coffee. There is heart sickness in this room. There are people who feel that hope has been deferred, and it's hard. And then there are others of you who are like, man, I, I don't, I'm not waiting. I'm not, I don't have hope deferred. You know, the most I wait is for my Netflix to load you know, or whatever, like, I'm not, other people are, like, in a really good spot right now. I just, I'm like, y'all need to get together. Like, the, the people in a good spot offer compassion and, and, and walk with the people who are in a rough spot and, and share the hope. But we need to, we all need to surround ourselves with other hopers. That's why we do small groups at this church. That's why we have classes and groups that meet together throughout the year to remind each other that we're not crazy and that we, that we hope in the same, the same God. So no, that's number one. Number two is this, bring hope to others because in doing so, we bring hope to ourselves. One of the reasons we celebrate Advent as a church the way we do is we want to take this season and, and get away from just the whole commercial Christmas thing and really lean into, this is the birth of Christ. It's his birthday, not ours. It's his birthday. Um, my apologies if your birthday is on December 25th. I know that's a, a sore subject for you. Um, but this is his birthday that we're celebrating. Um, and so we want to celebrate Advent by not buying everything that we could for other people, but instead taking some of that money and giving it towards a, a project that we do together. Now, over the last 10 years, we've done some really cool stuff at Advent. The very first year of Area 10, back in 2008, we raised, um, I think it was like $8,000 or something like that, we raised to, um, to buy a water system for a village in northern Vietnam, and we built a relationship there, and we did that. And, and we've done work in Haiti over the years and, and purchased things for them and done work there. And then we've done some local projects as well. We've done an affordable housing project here on the north side. We have donated to an organization that fights against human trafficking. Uh, last year, we, we purchased 40,000 meals and assembled 40,000 meals for, for families all over the metro area. So we were dealing with food scarcity. And this year... Um, we're doing some work around adoption and foster care. That the, the idea and the, 
the whole world of adoption foster care has been on my wife and I, on our hearts for about seven years, and, and for many people in this room, it's been on your hearts too. We've just never done anything with it as an Advent project. And so this year, we said, what if we raise money to help kids that are in the foster care system, to help the parents that are fostering, to help the social workers who are, are help working with the whole system. What could we do as a church if we really got behind us in Advent? I want you to hear, we did a rally about this back in 2012, and we had a lady speak who is a social worker, but she grew up in the foster care system, and she talks about what it's like to wait. Um, and I want you to hear from her. Her name's Brandy Hudson. This is an old clip of it, but just watch this. How many people here like to wait? Does anybody like to wait? Do you like to wait in the line at the grocery store? Do you like to wait to get your hair done? No, we get very impatient, right? And we're all adults, and we think of ourselves as being very put together. But there are times, like at the DMV, where we have to wait for a long time, that we start to lose our patience, that we start to get a little bit irritated, right? Well, imagine being a child and having to wait for love. Having to wait for acceptance, having to wait for belonging, having to wait for a family. That was my experience. I came into the foster care system right at birth, and I went into my first foster home. It didn't last very long. I went to a second foster home. It didn't last very long. Over the course of the 18 years that I was in the foster care system, I lived in 32 different homes, 32 different families, 32 different sets of strangers. And of all of these adults that I was exposed to, all of these adults who were in a position to care for me, none of them wanted me. The message that that gave me as a child was that I wasn't lovable. I wasn't worth wanting, that there was something inherently wrong with me. And as I waited for someone to step forward, as I waited for someone to say, Brandy, you really are enough, as I waited for someone to say, Brandy, I'll love you, I'll keep you, I'll raise you, I'll parent you, I began to slowly hate myself. I began to slowly believe that I truly was all of those negative things. I got to hear her say that live seven years ago, and um, it's really profound what she went on to talk about. She talked about having children of her own and um, being in pain, giving birth. And I remember her saying, I was, I was in the hospital giving birth, and I was crying out for a mother that I didn't have. Um, and I just thought, this, this shouldn't be... Um, this shouldn't be the way the world is, and yet this is the world we're in. And who can step up? Who can do something about it? Um, I, I believe people in the body of Christ in the church, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to care. Um, it doesn't mean everyone in the church is going to adopt a kid or, or to be a foster parent, but it means a lot of us could. Um, it doesn't, but we can all get involved in the system in some way and help. And so for Advent this year, because there's stories like Brandy's, because there's lots of them, thousands of them, we, we want to address that and, and, and lean into that. So we're going to do something for kids that are in group homes. We're going to throw them a big party. We're going to raise money for that. We're going to do something for um, social workers who have a very hard job 
and, and a very emotionally taxing thing, and we're going to do something really great for them. And then we're going to do something for foster parents to support and encourage them um, so that we can come around them and, and do a sort of a foster parent night out kind of thing with them, and we're, ra we're raising money for that. So our hope is over this month to raise $40,000 so that we can do these things. And any money we raise over forty. We want to set up a fund so that when someone walks into this church for the first time and if they happen to foster or, or adopt, we want, to, we want to give them like a special welcome pack and be like, we've got stuff for you and we've got support to wrap around you and we're so thankful that you're, you're, you're in on that journey. So this is what we're raising money for at Advent this year. You can give online as you go through the season. Uh, before the end of this year, give, give through our website. You can give to the, there's a drop-down menu for the Advent offering. And in doing that... Um, you will feel hope. You, you will feel the hope as we try to bring hope to others. Um, you'll, you'll experience that. Uh, Christians of all people should be people of hope um, because, because we believe God is at work and he can do something even in dark situations. You know, when, when Simeon holds up Jesus for the first time in the temple, he doesn't say, may your servant depart in peace for I have beheld, he, does, he says, I have beheld your salvation. He doesn't say, for I have beheld, I, I am beholding, um, uh, you know, better school systems or like lower taxes or less crime or, or like, and those are all things that we want to work towards, no, no doubt. But he says, I have beheld your salvation. I have seen God at work in the world. And he's not just fixing systemic problems and, and all the issues in society. He, and he's not just fixing surface issues in us. He's dealing with our hearts, with our sin, with our brokenness. God is reaching into that stuff. And we celebrate that at Christmas. And because he's dealt with us and because he's made us right with him, we have hope. We have hope for eternity that we can go to heaven. When we say hope, when Christians say hope, we're not talking about a wish. I think when culture says hope, they mean wish. I wish this would happen. I hope this would happen. I wish this would happen. When we say hope, we're talking about something that we, we believe is, is going to come true. It just hasn't happened yet. So if you came in here today and you, you would say, yeah, I've got a bit of heart sickness um, because my hope has been deferred, let me encourage you to, to, to stay, stay in it and, and allow God to, to do his work there. Jesus Jesus coming to earth is a reminder that he sees us and he knows us. And if you're, if you're heart sick right now, I, I want you to know that he does see you and he knows you. And lean into the community here um, and let God do his work on you in this season. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the hopers that are in this room, the people that um, feel it and who share it with others. Um, God, as we go through this Advent season, which can be such a, a blue and sort of a sad time for people, um, I pray that it is joyful that, um, that we're able to um, be merchants of hope with others and, and we'll apply that hope to ourselves as well. God, as we look at this Advent offering and raising $40,000 this month for um, adoption of foster care, I pray you just inspire people to generosity, that we'll do incredible things here um, and that you will do your work through that Advent. Um, thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.